Hi, and welcome to The Full Bloom Project, a body-positive parenting podcast dedicated to promoting emotional wellness in our children and health at every size for the whole family. Each week, we speak with extraordinary experts and distill everything from scholarly research to self-help books into accessible and digestible daily parenting practices. We're your hosts, Leslie Block and Zoe Bisbing, both New York City-based adolescent eating disorder psychotherapists and mothers of two here to help you help your children fully bloom. This episode is brought to you by the ABCs of Body Positive Parenting. Our signature virtual guides provide additional research and resources to help you put body positive parenting into action so that you and your care providers can help your children fully bloom. To claim yours, please visit our website at fullbloomproject.com. Today, we're wondering why is puberty so critical to body positivity? That's the P in our ABC guide to body positive parenting, and we're so excited to introduce today's guest, Dr. Jennifer Gaudiani, the one and only. (laughs) Dr. Gaudiani is an eating disorders expert physician and the founder and medical director of the Gaudiani Clinic, an outpatient clinic providing medical care for eating disorders. In 2008, she was one of the founding team members of the Acute Center for Eating Disorders at Denver Health, where she became a nationally recognized internist for her work on the medical complications of eating disorders. Dr. Gaudiani is one of the only outpatient internists in the U.S. who carries the Certified Eating Disorder Specialist designation and has received the Honorable Designation of Fellow from the International Organization Academy for Eating Disorders. Dr. Gaudiani's book, Sick Enough, A Guide to the Medical Complications of Eating Disorders, was released in October 2018. Dr. G, welcome to the Full Bloom Project. I'm so delighted to join you today. So I am an internal medicine physician with expertise in eating disorders. And my background is I grew up in Northern California and am the oldest of three girls. I went off back to college back east and then to medical school. And when I was in medical school, my sister, who openly talks about her journey, arrived at college and had developed an eating disorder. And I did not know anything about them except that I loved her unconditionally and yet knew that would probably be insufficient. So she got a great therapist. She ended up having bulimia for many years and was in full recovery by her mid-20s. And I just was so inspired by her journey and how hard it was that a little seed was planted in my heart. Fast forward to doing my residency and chief residency, and then moving out to Denver about 13 years ago, and I joined the hospital-based internal medicine staff at the inner city teaching hospital for the University of Colorado. And a year into my employment, the chief physician of that hospital system, who unbeknownst to me was the world expert in the medical complications of eating disorders, sent an email out to my division saying, does anyone want to help me grow and run the nation's highest level of medical care 
for adults with critical anorexia nervosa who can't receive care anywhere else. And I am a feminist. And at the time I was pregnant with my second daughter and I raised my hand and I said, absolutely me. And that changed my profession forever. I got to run that unit on a day-to-day basis for eight years and fell in love with my patients and learned so much from my amazing colleagues. And then in 2016, I left on very warm terms and founded my own outpatient clinic called the Gaudiani Clinic, which was founded for a couple of reasons. One was that I wanted to work with a greater diversity of patients than only those with critical anorexia nervosa and only adults. Two was that some of my patients when I was in my hospital days who would say, you know, who would unfortunately relapse and come back, they would say, Dr. G, I have to get so sick to come and see you. And I thought, ooh, that is so not what I'm about. I want the message to be that you have to stay well enough to be in connection with me. And so outpatient felt right. And I wanted to help my wonderful, fabulous patients ease the burden of medical problems that arise because of their eating disorder or that occur alongside their eating disorder and get in the way of their recovery journey while working in a really collegial, non-hierarchical way with their wonderful treatment teams, usually therapists and dietitians, around the country because I'm actually medically licensed in 25 states now. So after patients come see me for an initial in-person in Denver, I have the joy of getting to follow them by telemedicine. So that's me. It's such an innovative model. I mean, I feel like we could have a whole episode just about that very postmodern way of practicing medicine, which I I love, but I'll, I'll restrain myself because part of why we're so excited to have you on is because you've seen how deadly eating disorders can be and how, you know, you've seen that side of the spectrum. And the Full Bloom Project, we're really about prevention and we're all about rallying parents and care providers as well um, around this idea that we as parents and care providers can do so much to protect our our young people. And we as clinicians know that puberty is this uh, very vulnerable time where a lot of youngsters, their risk for uh, finding their way to an eating disorder or disordered eating, body image concerns, um, is high. And so we would love to know if you would help us focus on you know, on this particular moment in life, this critical risk period. And if you could help us understand why puberty is so critical to body positivity and for body positive parents to know about and what this risk even is. Mm. Well, I share your passion completely. And I'm so incredibly grateful that you two do this podcast because I agree wholeheartedly Puberty just brings up so many different psychological and physiological opportunities for things to suddenly start going awry. And yet you're right. Parents have much more agency in keeping their children well and inoculating them against a lot of the body stigma and absurd size, shape, and mistaken health linkages that society imposes upon us and our children. So I am with you and 
can't wait to really dive into this conversation. I, I just want to validate that I feel you are spot on in terms of doing this exact work. Thank you. That's, it's always helpful to hear that, you know? So yeah, let's, so let's talk about this. Let's talk about for parents who know their kids are going to be going through this or are going through this. What's so risky about this time and what's happening in this time? Let me think about this from two different perspectives. One is where medical issues can show up and can undermine true wellness that as they relate to the emotional state of a teen and the other is with regards to normal growth and development during the adolescent years and how the medical system actually runs the risk of being the one that provides some of the first toxic feedback to teens in ways that are really not helpful. So from the first perspective, I really like telling my patients stories. I was an English major. I love the value of narrative. And I think sometimes when I have patients who are feeling a little rigid and and having a hard time talking about things directly, telling stories can kind of bypass that part in their brain and land better. So sometimes I'll talk with my patients about the sort of archetype or or mythical narrative that I've learned from many of my patients over the years. And I want to say before I name this story that there is zero, zero part of me that is engaged in parent blaming around eating disorders. Absolutely not. It's been debunked ages ago. But I think that the story I'm about to tell can interestingly help elucidate what can happen medically and how the medical system can fail patients. So let's imagine that uh, there is, in this case, I'm going to use the female pronouns. I see patients of all genders. Um, Let's say that there's a little girl who from the time she was practically a toddler had incredibly sensitive radar to everyone's emotional state. This is how she was hatched. This is how she came genetically. She inherited it from her parents. And she is highly attuned to the world and exquisitely sensitive. And she therefore is gonna pick up signals with her little three-year-old, four-year-old, five-year-old brain that she doesn't know what to do with. She doesn't know how to interpret them, but she interprets normal interactions or even chaotic or, or difficult or anxious interactions in a very sensitive way so that she gets the sort of message in her home where maybe someone's anxious or parents are busy or a sibling is a little wild or has a chronic illness. She intuits that she should be fine because when she gets upset about things as a sensitive person, her very well-meaning parents hoping to save her from, you know, harsher times ahead say, you know, honey, save your tears. Why are, why are you so upset about this? Just let it roll off you, sweetie. This, everything's okay. And instead of understanding that as soothing, she understands that as be fine. And so she thinks to herself, okay, I'll, I'll be fine. All right. And yet she's still pulling in all of the emotional input from all around her. So now she's getting a little older 
she's starting to head into middle school and hormones are starting to flow and her body's starting to change. And for many patients with a sensitive temperament like this, change is not that welcome. Plus, social dynamics are starting to get a little more complicated as well, and there may be more friend chaos, etc. She understands that things aren't really fine, but she's never developed the language to say, wow, I'm really overwhelmed, because she's always thought, I'm fine, and I need to be fine, and fine is preferable. So eventually this builds up and up in her body, and she starts getting tummy aches. Well, now she's got a physical symptom and a physical symptom is different. So her parents take her to the pediatrician and the pediatrician does an exam and maybe does an ultrasound, maybe does some lab work. And what does the pediatrician say? You're fine. And she goes, oh, shoot. I mean, but I'm having symptoms and I'm kind of nauseated and I, my tummy hurts and I don't feel fine. And so, you know, in this day and age, with persistent symptoms and the Western medical system saying you're fine, oftentimes parents who are only trying to do the best for their child will seek out certain alternative providers or non-eating disorder specialist dietitians. And in this day and age, the classic thing to hear is let's do an elimination diet. Let's cut carbs, gluten, soy, dairy, sugar, etc. We're talking about a teenager whose body is trying to work miracles physically and emotionally. And suddenly we're depriving that body of adequate nutrients. However, because we're doing something about it, part of our girl's soul thinks, I'm getting self-care. I'm being taken seriously. And because it's emotional all from the beginning, her tummy starts to feel better briefly. And so she says to herself, oh my gosh, it was all those evil foods that were causing my stomach problems. I'm never going to eat those again. And because she's the best little rule follower you've ever seen in your life, no one can follow a meal plan like that and not lose weight. So she starts to lose weight. And here's where the outrageous toxicity of society starts kicking in. Because of course, what does everybody say who sees her? You look great. That's right. And she's really sensitive to external validation. And so she thinks, oh my gosh, I didn't know I didn't look great before, but apparently when I lose weight, I look better. And of course she's aware increasingly of the media images around her that are showing her unrealistic and highly unrepresentative, non-diverse images. And so she goes, oh. And so now her brain is starting to get a little starved. And when brains get starved, they start to get more rigid, paranoid, stuck. And as her weight drops, her tummy starts to hurt more because now she's having physiologic changes related to malnutrition. And this is, by the way, true of somebody, even if they're not so-called underweight. I am a weight-inclusive haze fanatic, and this may be somebody of any body shape or size that we're talking about. But she's starting to get a little bit of a starved brain. And as her brain gets starved, her self-perceptions alter. So now she's looking at the body she never really thought twice about and thinking, this is an inadequate, unacceptable body. I need to change this body. And anorexia is born. 
And parents can be bewildered by seeing their previously, you know, super high functioning golden child turn into this, you know, obsessed, miserable patient with atypical anorexia nervosa or anorexia nervosa, and they're off to the races. So that's, that's I think, one paradigm of how this can happen with each person's story being unique. But does that resonate with the two of you? Have you seen versions of that before? All the time, yes, unfortunately. Yeah. More, I mean, as, as you were sharing the story, I was, I was sad when I thought about, oh, my gosh, I've heard that story so many times. And at the same time, I was so thankful that you, you're, you're telling our listeners that story, like how anorexia can be born, right? It's not the only way, but one of the ways. And I think that that's very valuable to, to, to share because though we've seen it so many times, it doesn't mean that everybody knows what to look for. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. So then the other piece is the normative changes of puberty. And here's where I'm always amazed, not only at the failure of the Western medical system, which by the way, that's me. I trained Western medical and that's all, that's the only philosophy I know, but I've come to be keenly aware of the ways in which it fails patients and families, especially around issues of body shape and size. So throughout adolescence, you know, from pre-adolescence through call it age 25, bodies do the most astounding, miraculous work. I mean, it is almost as transformative as a caterpillar into a butterfly. During the ages 10 to 20, we mineralize the vast portion of our skeleton and actually lay down the bone that we're going to take with us until we die at the age of 90. We radically change our brain. We newly turn on an entire hormone system that will oversee future fertility and sexual function and health. And our body radically changes from that of a child to that of an adult. Well, in modern society, we have become so perplexed and so wrong-footed by the misconception that a thin body necessarily means a healthy body and that health, quote unquote, which we'll talk about later, is the most important outcome, that parents can see their children whose bodies are familiar to them as children's bodies with children's shapes start to thicken and look different before any actual puberty signs show up. Unfortunately, we have been conditioned through the internalized size and shape stigma that we all carry and optimally name and examine and challenge that thickening of a body must mean something's going wrong or that food is going wrong. When in fact, mother nature through the millennia that there have been human beings has been putting a little extra energy in our quote unquote savings account, which is often thickness through the middle in order to allow the body to use that for puberty. 
But the problem is, is that if this is happening around age eight, nine, 10, 11, in children of any gender, the parents may go into the pediatrician and, you know, in the 15 minute visit be told, whoa, the BMI is up. Whoa, your weight's way off the growth curve that it was before. I don't know. Are you eating too much dessert? Are you drinking too much juice? We got to watch this. And if that child is listening at all, that can be devastating. There should be nothing said in that pediatrician visit because this is how children enter adolescence and then adulthood. This is normal and necessary. Children need to gain a huge amount of weight to go from children to adults. And I don't know if any of your listeners went through their teen years without an awkward moment. If so, brownie points for them. But the vast majority of us and our children are going to go through all sorts of awkwardnesses. Children don't spring fully formed from their child's body into their final adult body. There is an amazing amount of remodeling that's going on. So this is an opportunity not just to feel like one could be the victim of the medical system because one could, but we can actually get out in front of that and inoculate our children against it by saying, hey, honey, I know we're going to your pediatrician today. As you know, in our family, we believe in body diversity and we understand that healthy bodies come in all shapes and sizes. There is a chance that your pediatrician in a well-meaning way could make a reference to your body or your weight that isn't based on good science. And so I just want you to know that you and I are both aware your body is doing awesome and it's about to do amazing work as you go become a teenager. We know that you eat delicious food and you satisfy yourself and you stop when you're full and you eat when you're hungry and you're doing movement you enjoy. We'll just look at each other if that pediatrician says that and we'll know how unfortunate they don't know the best cutting edge science. So I have a quick question because one, is it okay if we just write that script down and let our listeners download it so they can have something in front of them to rehearse before they, you know, they have this conversation? I have a feeling parents are going to want that. So is that okay? Oh, you can do anything you want. Thank you. Um, The other question I'm just imagining people are going to be asking, so I'm going to ask it is, when's a good time to have that conversation? You know, I think every family's values and belief structures are different. But for the families listening to this podcast who are, despite the diversity of their backgrounds and interests and values, are, are essentially united in wanting to raise body positive, well children, that these conversations can start from as early an age as you can possibly imagine in an age appropriate fashion. So, you know, with a sister who had an eating disorder and with myself having all of the temperamental traits that should have put me at risk for an eating disorder and by some grace I didn't get one, I am keenly aware as I raise my daughters who are 10 and 13 to try to do everything I possibly can to safety them during these key years. And it's not that I can safety them against 
the absurdities of society and the media in general. Uh, but I can create certain safeties. And so I've started talking to them about, it's probably less what I'm talking to them about and more what I'm not talking to them about in their early childhood. So for instance, I made a choice, my husband and I made a choice never to talk about our bodies in our home, positively or negatively, but certainly not the constant patter that one hears oh, I'm feeling fat today. Oh, I don't really want to go to the pool because I don't want to put this swimsuit on. Oh, I don't know. I'm going to have to cover up. Nope, none of it. Nor, you know, oh, I, I lost a pound today. I mean, we, we just don't engage in that culture. So our children didn't hear that growing up. And when they would see me exercise, I would say, mommy's exercising to stay strong so that we can play and have fun together. And we don't point out other people's bodies like, oh, look at her. She looks really fit. She must be so healthy. Nope. So there was the absence of dialogue that they heard to the extent that when they hear other people say that, it sounds wrong to them. It sounds off-putting and odd. And, and that's sort of, I think, the first step is what you don't say. And then as they come into the age of reason, obviously being an eating disorder physician, I talk a lot with my kids about this stuff. And as you know, parents have to remember how powerful their assertion of values are to their children who are looking for those roots and that foundation. Who am I? Which can absolutely be pushed against when they're a teenager to say, I am those things of my family. And actually I'm a bunch of different things too. But, but those assertion of values are so key, I think, for children to, to be happy and, and, you know, sort of grounded as they grow up. So for instance, when my daughter was six, she was, and I must say that she's a little tiny wise soul. She was at, at Gap with me and we were getting, buying her new jeans and she was wearing lots of cowboy boots at the time. So she was getting boot cut jeans and she had just learned how to read. So she was looking around the store and we bought her jeans. And as we leave, she goes, mom, I think Gap is a company that's doing well, but when they write skinny everywhere, because she saw skinny jeans, it makes people want to change the size of their bodies and eat less. In our family, we love the shape we are. That's awesome. I, I wonder what that felt like for you when you heard her say that. I wanted to drop to my knees and praise the skies. But then, you know, uh, recently, same daughter and I went to go see the new Spider-Verse movie. And as we walked out, I was saying, oh, I loved that movie. I loved the diversity of the cast. And she goes, mom, there was a diverse cast, but I did not see a lot of body diversity. All of the characters were very lean and muscular. So, I mean, you know, you start to create a, a family culture in which those comments aren't okay. And we understand, we, we, name why they're said and then we say we don't do that in our family and and so I think those are the conversations that can be had even as we model not denigrating our own bodies or judging our worth by our body size and shape you know and one thing that's coming to mind for me is how you are in many ways not to embarrass you, but you are in many ways a diamond in the rough. <laughs> there are very few physicians that are as informed or at least as 
proud to be informed about the health at every size model and, you know, present such a body positive image and and essence. And so I'm aware that as a parent, you know, if you start doing this work at home and heed your advice and then you walk into a doctor's office, that doctor who may not be as informed, not be as wise as you, has a certain amount of power and authority, right? Like I feel like non-medical professionals, non-health professionals are often understandably intimidated by people in positions of authority. And I'm finding myself wondering like, oh, what can we, like, what more can we do for them, right? Because I want them to have the script. We're going to totally have that available to them. But what do we do about, maybe it's a general question, what do we do about the fact that doctors don't seem to be able to echo your sentiment in those critical moments, right? This is a really big problem. And it's something that drives me every single day. It's one of the reasons that I wrote the book that we'll talk about later in this podcast in hopes that families will put the book into the hands of curious and willing physicians. But you're right, there is power in the room in a doctor's office. And I think ultimately, while we can't control the words that are said in the doctor's office and perhaps to a certain extent, the actions that are taken, we can deeply decide to be a verbal advocate with our child in our own homes so that they are less harmed by those interactions. And that is by no means to say that if parents just do it right, everyone's going to be fine. Of course not, because a medical system that harms will cause harm despite best practices by the parent. But we can at least reduce the risk. So I think by establishing a body positive home and by establishing eating patterns where food isn't dangerous, it's just, it's just food. We eat it because we need fuel for our bodies and we eat it for joy. And we, you know, where possible, eat it as a family where there's no black and white, bad or good, but moderation for certain foods and, you know, no concerns. These are the things that we can do to inoculate our kids. I essentially have been thinking about it as an immunization for our children against some of the ills they're going to come across in society so that when they hear a peer or a social media contact make some other comment, there will at least be this moment in their head where they say, oh, that's not how my parents think about this. And that pause to question it, I think is incredibly protective. What we know is that body dissatisfaction is the number one predictor of early onset eating disorders. And so, you know, I I have a number of parents ask me, okay, okay, Dr. G, I'm willing to imagine this world of body diversity with you, but like, I just want to raise a kid who isn't going to get teased. Our family's bigger. We have a thick family. How, How do I protect my child against that? Or a parent might say to me, you know, Dr. G, um, my kid asked me the other day, mom, am I fat? And I said, no, honey, you're beautiful. And I'll say, wait, listen to what you just said. Because you have just put fat and beautiful 
on the opposite ends of a spectrum. So we have to unconditionally love our children and the bodies they have, even as we try to set good examples for we eat a variety of foods, we eat plenty of different colored foods, we enjoy, uh, you know, treats in moderation. We all do that. You know, it's not one parent who's refusing to have ice cream when we go out for ice cream. Um, But children are going to come in different body shapes and sizes. And commenting on your kid's body or making them feel bad about their body, comparing them to a sibling's body who may just be built differently, will cause not a sudden conversion to the quote-unquote healthy stereotype, which typically looks like lighter-skinned, young, able, thinner-bodied, cis, hetero, but rather to say, your body is safe in our home, and you are beloved, and you are made up of more than just what your body looks like. So if we can help inoculate our teens against body dissatisfaction, then they're less likely to try dieting. Because what we know about dieting is that dieting causes much increased weight gain for reasons I'm happy to explain. It's very physiologic and it is like built into our brains. And then when kids diet, they're gonna get ravenous because guess what? They're trying to become adults. So when they diet, they're gonna likelier secretly eat. And we know that studies have shown that secret eating significantly increases disordered eating-related psychopathologies and dieting behaviors as well as loss of control eating. So the whole idea is accept and honor your kid's body, model reasonable eating in the home and the idea of, of intuitive eating, listen to your tummy, eating together, and you give your kid the best possible chance of getting through adolescence without eating disorder pathology. I, I want to, I have so many questions, um, but I, I want to be mindful of our, our parents' ability to listen to short amounts of information at one time. Um, and I want to ask you to talk a little bit about your book that you referenced so that people can learn more and can have access to you if they want would would you just start there with like what's the book about its name and then we'll get to our last special question that we always like to end with i would love to thank you so my book which is published by rutledge is called sick enough a guide to the medical complications of eating disorders it's available on amazon as well as on the rutledge website and i use the title sick enough because so many individuals with eating disorders as a result of that mental illness believe that they aren't uniquely sick enough to change their behavior or to seek help. They might say, I'm not thin enough, or my labs aren't abnormal enough, or my vital signs aren't weird enough, or whatever it may be. But the idea behind the book is to share everything I've learned over the last decade in this field because I wanted to help more patients and families and clinicians 
than I'll ever have the privilege of seeing one-to-one to really bring the state-of-the-art evidence-based science using amalgam case scenarios that try to highlight diverse patients, diverse experiences and bodies so that people feel they can see themselves both in the diverse portraits on the cover and in the case scenarios provided. And I have a copy of your book and I love it and I, I, I recommend it to all sorts of people in my practice. Mm. Um, but I wonder if you could say a little bit about why this book might be a must-have for the library of a body-positive parent and, you know, not necessarily, I mean, perhaps also a parent that has a kid that's actively struggling with an eating disorder, but the parent of a two-year-old, right, who's just really trying to to do as you say and really get this right and try to create a body-positive home? It's mm, a lovely question. You know, my hope is that this book has broad appeal because it doesn't just touch on what eating disorders do physically to the body. It touches on what diets do to the body. They're indistinguishable as far as our brain is concerned. Our brain understands them, either an eating disorder or a diet or a fast or a cleanse, as being starvation. And human beings evolved to resist starvation by changing how our body and mind work in the face of caloric deprivation. So my hope is that because we're all steeped in a culture of thin worship and false assumptions about health and size, that people reading this book will say, oh my gosh, my mom put me on a diet when I was 15. I understand so much more about my body and what's happened to me since because of this. Oh, now I'm even more determined not to hand that chain down to my child. So because it's medical and sometimes measurable, sometimes not measurable, my hope is to get people's buy-in and give them ammo to resist diet culture. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I think about that parent that that's just their child is on the verge of, of puberty and um, is coming in with that fear of what do I do? I don't want my kid to be teased. I, I don't know what to do. Is something wrong? Is something not wrong? And not really getting a clear answer, except for the answer that comes from our culture, which is, well, why don't you just help them out a little bit? And mm. it's the exact thing that we don't want to be doing at all, you know, and not even dabbling in it. And I think the what you said that I love that I hope parents hear and think about is that elimination diet, because that is so popular with mm-hmm. um, digestive symptoms that many young kids have. I, I, I do want to ask the question of what what should they do instead? What do you recommend they do when their doctor says, well, let's try the elimination diet? I think if a parent has a child with a complicated digestive system, maybe that's been present from birth, maybe that's only manifested recently, and a reasonable medical workup looks like there's no physical cause, the next step is the therapist's office, not the elimination diet. Because 
there's something that needs to be spoken. I see so often the impact of mind-body connection. So finding a great therapist, doing work with your kid on, you know, stress management and distress tolerance, these are the things that are likeliest to heal a tummy, not the absence of gluten or soy or sugar. Those are just going to make your kid malnourished and set them up for harm. Now, if somebody has celiac disease with a formal allergy, yeah, of course, they have to go gluten-free, of course. And there are children who have food intolerances that can't be medically, you know, proven. Okay, but in the majority of cases, you'll do the most good and the least harm by going first to the therapist's office if the pediatrician says everything checks out medically. I'm glad Leslie asked that question, and that answer is, it's great. I think that it doesn't mean that there can't be medical follow-up at some point later if need be, but that that is something very active a parent can do. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the honor of asking you this our favorite million dollar question. And I hope it's okay. I kind of want to ask it in two directions. So (laughs) I want to ask, or we want to ask, what is the one thing that you would recommend parents do on the regular to help their kids prepare for and progress through puberty in the most body positive way? And then I'm going to ask it again. And I want you to think about that instead of parents, healthcare providers. Mm, I love those questions. I've got a million things racing through my head right now. My, boy, this is a tough one. My belief is that besides what I've already talked about, so that's a sort of freebie for me. (laughs) One of the best things that parents can do to help their children with healthy body image, ironically, has more to do with permitting the whole range of emotional experience in their children than it does doing anything physical. So, you know, I'm a classic type A anxious harm avoidant physician. What a setup as a mom. And when my kids were younger, before I was really deeply into this field, if they would say, you know, they have a tummy ache or something was bothering them, I would go into mom MD mode. Okay. What do you have? Do you have to poop? Are you hungry? What needs to happen here? And then I would say, you're going to be fine, honey. Well, that turns out to be totally wrong because they weren't looking for a detailed differential diagnosis and a reassurance they'd be okay. What they were looking for was validation and support. So what I learned from my patients based on their experience of invalidation, oftentimes related to being exquisitely sensitive people, is anytime my kids came to me with anything, emotional or physical, I started saying these four things. I'm so sorry. That sounds uncomfortable. Do you want to cuddle or do you want to talk about it? And I will tell you, it transformed things for me. And I think maybe for them too, because whether it was a tummy ache or frustration over homework, they didn't want me to solve it. Heaven knows in current parenting, we should not be solving our children's problems. They wanted me to validate 
to comfort and then to provide, you know, sort of a, a thing to do, to cuddle or to talk about it. My hope is that by my saying that over and over, that's the inner voice they're going to absorb and apply to themselves when I'm no longer around on a daily basis. They're going to come into a problem and rather than immediately say, what's the problem with this? Okay, well, I'm probably fine. They're going to say, oh, this is uncomfortable. Jeez, I got to be compassionate with myself over this. This is tough. All right, what do I need to do now to make myself feel a little better? That to me allows an emotional range that doesn't require people to go into their bodies, either through food restriction to numb or through binge eating to numb. And I think it keeps people safer in their bodies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Yeah, I'm just taking that in and I, I'm appreciating that you're a physician and that that's your answer. <laughs> and that you're validating that connection between the mind and the body. And I am still curious what you would really recommend that all care providers that have the privilege of interacting with adolescents around puberty or or even before that, right? Like that period of time, what you were describing, that maybe the, the puberty pudge is coming, but puberty hasn't set in yet. What is the one thing that you'd really just wish they would do? I wish every care provider would learn about health at every size and weight inclusivity and look at the data and realize this is the only way forward. To do that would make a radical difference. Now, are they going to do that? They will not. But if I had my magic wand, that is what I would wish for. Maybe they will. We don't, you don't know. (laughs) Well, you are. And I think one thing I wanted to ask kind of in closing is how do people work with you since you are able to work with people in in different states um how do people work with you yeah absolutely so i have one fabulous partner dr Alyssa rosen and while my panel runs pretty full these days sometimes i'm able to take a new patient but she is building her practice and she was the former assistant medical director of my former program and she's incredible. So the two of us are highly aligned. People can go to our clinic website, www.gaudianiclinic.com. That's G-A-U-D-I-A-N-I clinic.com. There's a ton of information. There's, you know, what we've written and said about eating disorders and body image, as well as frequently asked questions about the clinic. And if parents are interested, they can just call up the clinic and do an intake. Do you primarily work at this point with people with active eating disorders or is a parent who's listening to this, who, who's like, I want a doctor like this person that I'm listening to right now. Can I just see her? What does that type of a parent do? Mm, I love that question. That's so wise. Anyone who has or ever had an eating disorder or disordered eating in any body shape or size, any gender, any age, that's who we care for. Okay. Okay. 
Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for your time. Is there anything else that you think you'd like to make sure you share with our listeners? I don't think so. This was so much fun, and I deeply appreciate the work you two are doing. As do we with you, and I feel like very uh, excited for a future conversation with you because I just been filled with so many more questions. But this was a, a treat, and our listeners are in. Uh, they're very lucky that that you were willing to come on and speak with us today. I would love to come on again. You just name the time. Oh, awesome! Well, <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much. Oh, there's so much to take in. I have to say, it's so encouraging to hear from a doctor who really understands eating disorders and is operating from this health at every size perspective. Absolutely. I I really just want to clone her and put one of her in every city, in every state. I don't know. Even just one more would be useful, but... You know, when we see young people with eating disorders in our practice, it's so important that there is someone on the team who's taking care of them, you know, the medical side of things, but doing it from this perspective that we know works so well, that's informed by body positivity, health at every size, devoid of weight stigma or fat phobia, all that we talk about on this podcast and all that the stuff that's way too common in most medical settings, even the pediatric settings, right? I mean, even, I would say, often, the the pediatric settings, you know, what we talked about today and Dr. G's story really pointed out how sometimes well-intentioned interactions with medical providers can end up reinforcing or even triggering disordered eating that might morph into an eating disorder. And it just, it seems so important to have awareness as parents that, Not all health professionals are coming from this body-positive perspective, even though the research supports it. So we as parents need and can, and it's an opportunity for us to really be informed and use that information to prepare ourselves and our kids when we go in for our, our medical appointments, especially when, you know, they're at that vulnerable stage of, you know, 10 and 11 and puberty is is coming and maybe coming early and their bodies are really starting to change. Totally. And I'm really pleased that we are walking away and hopefully everyone's walking away from this episode hearing some, you know, pretty concrete strategies to try to protect against this. I heard one, we can put that ongoing body positive work at home into action And that's, of course, what we're trying to help people do with this podcast and by connecting everyone to all these different resources that do exist. Um, And I appreciate that she was saying that that can really help kind of inure kids against the risk that can kind of come in those interactions um, and that we can also actively prepare in advance of those doctor's appointments. I loved how she modeled that. Like she gave us a script, which we're totally posting on the website, and I guess also we're, we're going to talk more specifically in a future episode coming soon about genetics and growth charts that Dr. G brought up today, because that issue of weight stigma coming up in your doctor's office is so common, and we really want to help uh, our listeners have, uh, have additional information about that as well. 
I'm actually also thinking maybe this podcast, this episode with Dr. G is something that parents could even share with their pediatricians if if they felt brave enough to do so. Yeah, I mean, we've had a lot of pediatricians, just side note, writing in and supporting this work and being grateful for it. So I don't want to kind of vilify pediatricians or medical providers. They really are trying to do the best they can, and they really don't have a lot of education in eating disorders is just not part of medical school. So a lot of them are really open to it. I mean, my pediatrician, your pediatrician, like, I think that I want to empower parents to just, you know, bring up the conversation and have some resources to back it up. But I wouldn't be surprised if your pediatrician was more open to it than, um, or adolescent medicine doctor, than initially you might be afraid they, they would be rejecting of it. Um, yeah, no, that's true. I, uh, my pediatrician uh, was very eager to learn about the resource, and she didn't experience it as critical by any means. She was interested in learning. So that's a, that's a good trait to have in a pediatrician, just a willingness to hear new things. Also, yeah, if there are pediatricians listening, because pediatricians can be parents, and also we have a lot of listeners who are more health professionals, we're learning, you know, we, we hope that this speaks to you and doesn't... Um, kind of ostracize you this session uh, at all because we want to just be a resource and supportive. Moving on almost, just thinking about how sensitive of a time the body changing with puberty is for kids um, and girls, um, not just girls, but it does strike this chord within me that, um, you know, there's a lot that's happening during that time and it's surprising and scary, you know, when we're kind of used to our kids being little and um, especially if if they're showing signs of, of puberty happening on the earlier side. Um, I just, I see it a lot in my practice. This is the moment when a child is so vulnerable to any kind of stigma around their bodies changing. It's remarkable. I'm not sure what you're seeing, but I'm curious to hear what you're seeing in your practice and what you're thinking about. Well, it's interesting. When I worked on an inpatient unit, an eating disorder inpatient unit years ago, the psychiatrist uh, that I worked with, their child psychiatrist, was constantly educating parents about how kids are supposed to chunk out before they grow up. Like she would always say that, like chunk out is good. It's like the only way to grow. You know, and and I I never forgot that because she was talking about it as though like, yes, we want chunky. That's okay. That's part of what's normal. But I'm one appreciating how that is sort of like new information for people, even though if you read like a biology textbook, that's pretty just straightforward. And yet it concerns people. And I'm just so aware that while this is a vulnerable time for young people, for the kids actually going through the changes, it's really a vulnerable time for parents too who may have, let's say, internalized weight stigma or fat phobia. Just They just may be contending with that anyway. I mean, we've talked plenty on this podcast about how prevalent those thoughts are and experiences are just because of the culture we live in. So your child, you know, developmentally appropriately chunking up, chunking out the puberty pudge, whatever you want to call it, could send a parent, otherwise well-meaning, wanting their kid to develop, you know, into a fully formed human, 
maybe could trigger their fat phobia or trigger their weight stigma. And I think that this is a wonderful moment to just notice it. Are you freaking out a little bit? You know, are you having thoughts and feelings about, oh no, what if my kid is going to be fat? Like, okay, like we're not here to judge you if you have that thought, but we certainly want you to know if you're having that thought because this is a super vulnerable time for everyone and it's better to know what you're thinking, even if it's kind of like a dark thought. You know what I mean? I do. I do. And there is so much more to cover, but that is our show for this. Okay, that's our this, show. <laughs> this kind of iteration of P for puberty. I, I want to speak so much more about this. And I imagine there, there's just a lot more to cover. But right now, we want to know what your reactions or questions are that came up um, during this episode. So please let us know what you think by leaving a comment on our Instagram page at Full Bloom Project. And as always, if you like what you're hearing, we greatly appreciate you leaving us a review or rating on iTunes so more people can find the podcast. We're learning that this is actually very important. Um, so please, if you have a moment, check us out. And also, of course, tune back in next week for more body positive parenting wisdom.